All right. Some people like to listen to podcasts, and they're just going to be abruptly cut off. So I'm sorry for that. We're back. All right. Fourth Aliyah. We were in the Parasha Teruma. Man, so much good stuff. Uh, so many great insights. I have uh, looking here probably mm, 20, 25 tabs of things to share. Just great stuff. So let's get to this. We are in Capiculo Bantises, verso uh, 15. <laughs> verso 15. I don't know what it is with me and 15 in Spanish. Some of you Spanish speakers out there, tell me. What is 15 and what is 50? I don't know why. I have a mental block about that. I speak Spanish eh, fairly well. Um, but I just, when it comes to 15 and 50... My brain just doesn't want to do it. I don't know what the deal is. It shouldn't be that hard. Um, 15, all right. Quince and cincuenta. Toda raba devora. I'm going to work on that. Hashem should help me. Quince, cincuenta. Quince, cincuenta. Wow, not sure why it's a problem. <clears throat> all right. Verse 15. You shall make the planks of the tabernacle of acacia wood standing erect, ten cubits the length of each plank, and the and a cubit and a half the width of each plank. Each plank should have two tenons parallel to one another, so shall you do for all the planks of the tabernacle. You shall make planks for the tabernacle, twenty planks for the south side. You shall make forty silver sockets under the twenty planks, two sockets under the plank for its two tenons, and two sockets under the next plank for the two tenons. These sockets that we're talking about, of course, are the silver sockets. The uh, the foundation of the tabernacle. We talked about that. It says, for the second wall of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 planks. There are 40 silver sockets, two sockets under one plank, and two sockets under the next plank. For the back of the tabernacle on the west, you shall make six planks. You shall make two planks for the corners of the tabernacle in the back, and they shall be even at the bottom, and together shall they match at its top for a single ring. So shall it be for them both, for the two corners shall they be. There shall be eight planks and their silver sockets, 16 sockets, two sockets under one plank, and two sockets under the next plank. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the planks of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the planks of the second side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the planks of the tabernacle side of the back of the west. The middle bar inside the plank shall be extended from end to end. You shall cover the planks with gold, and its rings shall you make of gold as housing for the bars. And you shall cover the bars with gold, and you shall erect the tabernacle according uh, to its manner, as you will have been shown on the mountain. You know, that's the end of our reading uh, for the fourth Aliyah. The tabernacle had to be just exceedingly uh, gorgeous. Can you imagine um, just the uh, just to see the, the gold pillars, all the beautiful fabrics, the tapestries? I just cannot imagine how gorgeous... Um, this uh, situation was, the tabernacle was. So this is why in Judaism there is a concept of beautifying a mitzvah, um, <clears throat> um, keeping the synagogue beautiful, keeping yourself 
beautiful as we all attempt to do. I, I, I use olive oil uh, every day. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. But um, <laughs> we keep ourselves beautiful. But seriously, dressing nice to come to Shabbat, dressing nice even to come to Shabbat table, um, these are all principles of what it means to beautify the mitzvah. I'm also excited to say, um, well, no, I'm going to keep that as a surprise. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you till you see it. Never mind. I was going to tell you something else that we're doing, but I'm going to wait until you see it. That's my problem. My family will tell you, my wife will tell you that my biggest issue is I cannot keep a surprise. I have to, I just want to I buy something for somebody and I want to tell them. It's a weakness. That's all right. I'm getting better. All right. So I left off yesterday talking about the Torah, that it's outside time and space. Outside time and space. I want to continue this thought where it says in chapter 25 and verse 16, it says, you shall place in the ark the testimonial tablets. So it, it's interesting. It says here that um, in his commentary, Rashi identifies the testimonial tablets as the Torah, which is a testimony affirming that Adonai had indeed given Israel the commandments written therein. However, further on, Rashi states that the testimony tablets refer to the Ten Commandments. So in his commentary to Deuteronomy 31.26, he cites a dispute on this topic. In the Talmud, which is in Babra Basra 14b, that some hold that a, a shelf protruded from the Aaron and the Torah scroll written by Moses was placed on it, while others maintain that the Torah was placed beside the stone tablets inside the, the Aaron. However, everyone agrees that in Solomon's temple there were but the two tablets in the Aaron, which included the broken pieces of the first set of tablets. So there were, remember, there was the tablets that Moshe brought down initially and they were broken. Those are the broken tablets, right? Um, then Moshe went up the second time to the mountain and he received forgiveness for our um, absolute failure. And then he went up a third time, and when he came back down after that third time, that 40-day period, he brought down the renewed covenant, the renewed tablets, albeit not in the, um, uh, not in the, the same content, but not the same substance. Well, those renewed tablets, along with the broken tablets, were put in the ark that was in the temple of King Solomon. So what does this tell us? It tells us that the, both Mashiachs were in the ark of the first temple, which is why the Ruach HaKodesh resided there to such an extent. So it says here, it should be noted that the interior of the Aaron was devoid of any kind of image, testifying to the spirituality of the divine being. The fact that the most sacred object of the tabernacle contained only the tablets of the law in their original state was a constant reminder to the children of Israel 
that the laws engraved in stone represent the eternal foundation of their covenant with God. So it's interesting that when you walk into the, the throne room of God, which is the, the Kodosh HaKodoshim, that there, um, there wasn't any image. There wasn't, the only thing that made that space holy was the Torah itself. You know, somebody uh, wrote us a, um, a, a question on our website. I saw it yesterday. I haven't responded yet. But the person was asking, you know, if we believe in certain things. And, of course, all Christian doctrines, which we don't. Um, the person, this particular thing, stuff the person was asking. But they, they said, how come you spend so much time focused on the law and not on grace? Uh, which, of course, betrays a fundamental uh, misunderstanding of, of uh, God, the universe, the Bible, the message of the Mashiach. Because the law is, the, as you all know, is the scripture. So the question really, and this is why I love to take questions like that and kind of turn them around and, and re-ask them using uh, synonyms. The question could be asked, why do you spend so much time focused on the Word of God rather than grace? Now, when you ask that question in that way, it's completely nonsensical. But we've been trained theologically not to think that way. Anyway, that's an aside. So it says, with wings spread upward, Rashi, quoting Sukkah 5b, explains that there were ten... Tefahim of space between the wings of the cover of the Aram. In the description of King Solomon's temple, the total length of the wings of each cherub is given as ten amos. That's in 1 Kings 6.24. Yet, if one cherub was on the north side and the other was on the south side, and the entire area of the Holy of Holies measured only 20 amos, then what space remained for the body of the cherubim? The same question arises for the hour in itself, since the dimensions given there leave no space inside for the ark. So in the Talmud, Rabbi Levi affirms that the Aaron did not occupy earthly space so that its very existence depended upon supernatural intervention. Megillah 10b. This marks yet another miracle which occurred within the temple, according to Yoma 21a. Indeed, the divine presence can reduce itself. Listen to this. First of all, let's go back. What this is saying is obvious, that if you tally up the dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the first temple... Couple that with the dimensions given for the cherubim and the ark itself. There isn't enough space. So how is it that the ark can fit in the Holy of Holies if there's not enough space? And the answer is the ark, because of the Torah, does not occupy space. We read yesterday that the Torah is outside the bounds of time. So therefore, the ark is outside the bounds of time and space. This is a critical point. Because there are people that believe theologically that the Torah ceased to exist at a particular time 
and no longer occupies any space in our life. And that is an impossibility because the Torah is outside of time and space. In fact, time and space exist because of the Torah. My friends, if we don't have the law of Moses, then we wouldn't have, we would not, you and I wouldn't exist because there would not be any universe in which to exist. Because this universe, in fact, the very vacuum of space itself is a product of creation which came vis-a-vis the Torah. This is why Yeshua could walk through walls, why he could why he could walk on water, why he could and says when he got in the boat, they were fighting against the wind and the waves and the disciples were row 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 your boat. They couldn't get past the waves and the wind and yet as soon as Yeshua stepped inside the boat, immediately they were on the other side of the lake. Why? Because he's outside of time and space. He's not confined the Torah is not confined to our time. This is why dispensationalism is ludicrous because it suggests that at a certain time, the word of God ceased to exist. If that were true, then time would cease to exist. So it goes on to say the divine presence can reduce itself to our earthly dimensions and remain so only by supernatural means. Oh my goodness, did you just re- did you just hear what I read? The divine presence that is the Shekinah, that is the Ruach HaKodesh can reduce itself to our earthly dimensions. And remains so only by supernatural means. This is exactly what happened when Yeshua came and was the manifest presence, the manifest image of the divine being. It is a concept referred to as Zimzum. Now, I have an insight here. Let me see if I can find it right quick. I know it's here. I just um trying to find out what the source was that talks about this concept of Zimzum. I'll come across it in a second. I don't seem to my eye is not catching it at the moment, but this process of Zimzum is talking about Hashem contracting. Ah, here it is. Tadarabashem. By the way, I just happen to see this as I'm looking for that. Um, this is that which was spoken of. Anyway, it says here that before the golden calf came, God had already decided to give us the laws of the tabernacle. And there's just a real quick insight from Or, or Hochma that just says that God's his typical M.O., is to give us the remedy before there's a disease. You know, in a, in our natural world, like we're experiencing now with this corona um, virus outbreak or what have you, um, whatever the case is, typically there is a disease that pops up or there's some type of something that pops up and then we scramble to find a remedy. But that's not how Hashem works. Hashem 
gives the remedy before there is a disease. For obvious reasons, he sees things coming. So going on to this concept of, of Zimzum, Zimzum, it says, so that I may dwell among them. Now the rabbis had a challenge when it came to discussing the tabernacle. Because on the one hand, God is, it is believed that we're not supposed to make an image of God. As I have pointed out, and I'm waiting for somebody to uh, prove me wrong on this, God said, don't make an image of him. However, he never said, I don't have an image. It's a very, very, very important distinction because many people have said God doesn't have an image and therefore, uh, you know, we're not supposed to make an image. That's not what he said. He said, don't make an image of me. He never said, I don't have an image. Very important. Incidentally, this is why I believe no one ever described the Mashiach. Isn't that fascinating? The most important person, you could say, to, every, to ever walk the earth, the most important, important character to ever be in the midst of humanity, no matter what you think of him, okay? And yet, you will not read in any of the writings a single description of what he looked like. Now, clearly, he looked like something. Obviously, he had a height, he had a weight, he had a skin tone, he had a, a, his eyes were a certain color, his beard was long, probably had some gray in it. <laughs> but not one description of him at all. Why do you think that's the case? Hmm... But I digress. It says, since God is infinite, this is so so let me just back up my train of thought. So the rabbis had a problem. You're not supposed to make an image of God. And yet they understood that the tabernacle was an image of God. See, that's the thing. The rabbis agree that the tabernacle was an image of God. And so they had a problem with how can we not make an image when we're right here making an image? And then Yeshua, excuse me, God says, Hashem says to Moses' sister and brother, hey, I speak to Moses face to face. In fact, he talks to my image in their tabernacle every day. That literally says he speaks to my image in uh, Numbers chapter 12. So anyway, they had this problem. Then they had another problem. Another problem is, so, so the, the tabernacle itself is the image of God. So how does God dwell anywhere if he is everywhere? Not as, see, okay, it's not just that Hashem is everywhere. He is everywhere. What I mean by that is that one of his names is Makom. And what it means is that God is the place. So Hashem is literally everywhere in that everywhere is Hashem. You and I, this is what is so mind-blowing, is that you and I right now are literally existing within Hashem. 
Well, that being the case, the rabbis like, uh, you know, comment. How is it possible that God can occupy a tabernacle? How can he dwell in a tabernacle? Because he is everywhere. He is everything. The tabernacle exists on the earth which exists in him. It's no different than the argument that people make because we can't wrap our human minds around it. Please listen to this. It's no different than when people say, how can Yeshua be divine? How can he be the image of the living God and yet pray to himself? It's the same argument. Because we can't get how God can be here and here at the same time. In the same way the rabbis, the sages could not comprehend how God could be everything and yet exist within himself. And frankly, I don't know that we'll ever get it. Or that we ever should. Some rabbis say that we should not even attempt to seek out those types of uh, concepts. So it says here, it says, since God is infinite, how can we say that the tabernacle is the dwelling place for the Shekinah? The Kabbalists utilize the concept of Hashem's Zimzum. That is his contraction to resolve this enigma. The all-powerful God chose to withdraw the intensity of his presence unto himself. The tabernacle then becomes the focal point of this concentration. Thus the Midrash observes that God who fills the higher worlds and the lower worlds reduced his earthly residence to the 20 planks of the north side and the 20 planks of the south side and the five to the west of the tabernacle. In other words, let me, let's just put this into uh, another, another way. God contracted his spirit so that it was able to dwell within a structure of creation. In other words, the Ruach HaKodesh was clothed in materiality so that God could dwell amongst us. Now, that's true. Everybody agrees that's true with respect to the tabernacle. Then if that's the case, then why is it so hard to think that Hashem might be able to contract his essence to be able to dwell in the materiality of flesh. If he can dwell in the materiality of goat skins and gold and wood and silver, then why can't he contract himself to do so in another form? I'm waiting for a rebuttal. Especially when the Torah refers to him as Ish Malchama, which means man of war. Which is always translated master of war, but that's not what the word for master is Baal. The word for man is Ish. And Torah uses Ish.
Now, it says, basically, the body is the house of the soul. That's what Judaism teaches, right? What it's saying here is that the soul of the tabernacle was the, the spirit of the living God. What I'm trying to illustrate here is that these concepts that we hold to are not so foreign to Jewish thought as people would have you believe. So let's just conclude here. It says the process of zimzum, that is contraction, occurred with creation. <clears throat> that is, before creation, the cosmos was full of Hashem's glory. In order to create the universe, that is space, God had to create space because it was needed so that space could exist. In other words, God had to contract a little bit of himself so that there was a place for the universe to exist. Because there's nothing outside of God. See, that's the thing. If you look at space as a rectangular cardboard, let's say, think about space as a rectangle. However big you want to make the rectangle. So there we are inside that rectangle flying around on the USS Enterprise. At some point, we're going to come to the edge of the rect rectangle. What's beyond the rectangle? The answer is God. So anyway, it says all of this was an act of love. In other words, oh my goodness. In other words, when God contracted himself in order to make room for our existence, that itself was an act of love. Therefore, Zimzum, when God contracts himself in order to dwell within creation, that, my friends, is an act of love. Is it any wonder that Yeshua taught so much about love? We're, we're ending it here. Here it comes. The final quote. Commentators have pointed out the significance of God's choice to have his presence revealed in a small, relatively modest tabernacle. In fact, it's really in man himself that divine glory should ultimately dwell. What? It's really in man himself that the divine glory should ultimately dwell. Man should offer himself to God as his abode. The Torah does not say, Vashaknuti betoko, that I may dwell in it, that is a sanctuary, but Neti betokam, that I may dwell among them. That literally, in them. That is, in men's hearts and minds. God asks each person to build a sanctuary in his heart, to prepare himself to be a tabernacle for God, and to be a dwelling place for his splendor. To build an altar there, to uplift his soul, and to be ready to sacrifice all of his hopes and desires at every instant for God's will. May that be our heartbeat. End of our Aliyah today. We are out of time, but we're definitely not out of content. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you again for all of your well wishes and happy birthday greetings. That is a very, very much appreciated. I will see everybody with God's help tomorrow for the uh, fifth Aliyah, and we'll go on from there until we meet again. Have a blessed and amazing and wonderful day. If you live in Dallas-Fort Worth, stay warm. It's cold today, and uh, it's going to be warm tomorrow, though. So blessings. We'll see everybody tomorrow.